Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Shares for beginners. You may need to be making an investment decision. It might be something that you own that has come out with this piece of news and it might not be obvious what the implications are for it immediately and the share price is reacting and you can't work out immediately if it's overreacting or underreacting. Do you actually want to exit your position on the back of this or would that be an overreaction? So it can be, you know, it's very intense and very stressful if you're trying to actively manage your portfolio and, and, and protect what you're investing, and but not make stupid mistakes. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. What is reporting season? How do analysts find the numbers that they use to judge the quality of a company? Today, I'm joined by Simon Shields, Portfolio Manager and Co-Founder of Monash Investors. Hi, Simon. Hi, Phil. Thanks very much for coming on. Great to be here. Let's start with a discussion about your background in finance. How did you get to this point? Well, it's a pretty long story. I'm in my uh, mid-50s, so um, I did courses at university Mm. that was relevant. I did accounting, finance, law, uh, did an MBA following university, joined the um, Chartered for Financial Analyst course, which is quite a hard course to do, and I got that qualification, and it's a professional association. My first job was as an equity analyst with Westpac Investment Management, five years there, three years at Rothschild, same sort of job almost 10 years at Colonial First State, same sort of job, and as a portfolio manager and eventually head of Aussie Equities. They were growth investors, so a, a focus in the looking for growth shares and a bias like that in the portfolio. Moved across to UBS, where I was head of Aussie Equities there for six years, um, and it was a value investor and a value bias in the way that we look for, for shares. But at the end of that, I'd done growth, I'd done value, and I really wanted to do something a bit different. I didn't want to be tied into the way other people manage money and just come on, in effect, as a hired gun to, to follow their system. And so with um, a colleague, we set up our own business, which is not tied to any particular style, but is um, looking for payoff when we invest in stocks based on what we think the stock is worth. Uh, that price can vary. Uh, our view about what a stock is worth obviously changes as the outlook changes and as the market conditions change and the economy changes. But that's what we do. And so now we're just focused on delivering good returns over time for our investors, regardless of the state of the market. So having been in the industry for a while, how do you see the industry changing? It has changed quite a lot from when I started. In the early days, Australia had thousands of company-level superannuation funds, and they are all managed by professional fund management firms. Over time, that's really consolidated, to mostly to industry funds. Those funds management firms consolidated as well as a result. But then, because of technology and outsourcing, there was a real fragmentation as, as individual fund managers were able to set up their new firms. So that led to an expansion in the number of fund managers, followed again by more consolidation by the industry. So where does that leave us now? Well, essentially, there's been so much consolidation at the industry super fund level that there isn't the same sort of market for professional fund managers that there was. Where the market's more focused is more at a retail level now, either um, direct investing or financially advised 
investing. And so the, the, the clients either investing in shares themselves or they're investing in funds themselves or they're, or they're individually managed super funds are investing in funds. And that's where our client base is across all those, all those three sort of areas. So we're recording today on the 19th of July. So what is reporting season? As you know, the financial year in Australia is 30 June, and typically companies will do half yearly accounts, so as at the end of December, and as at a full year at the end of 30 June. And they take about a month to do those numbers and to pull a presentation together on the back of those numbers, and then they come out and they talk about the results for the half or the full year. Uh, with a presentation and generally with an outlook statement. And that's reporting season. It it, it generally starts about um, back end of the first week of either February or August and goes to the end of that that month. And so we have it in a six-monthly period in Australia. In America, they report quarterly. So they have reporting seasons every quarter. It doesn't take a month generally to get all the information out. So in the United States, for the June quarter, as of today, we're already starting to see lots of companies start to come out with their results. They don't have presentations that are generally as detailed as the Australian presentations. And the other difference between us and the United States is that we have continuous disclosure and they don't have continuous disclosure. So if anything changes in Australia between the six months, the company has to come out and talk about it if it's significant enough, whereas in the United States, they don't. They just come out every three months. I've heard the term confession season. Is that different to reporting season? Absolutely. So if you think about and confession season is actually something that's more specific to Australia than the United States. Mm. And to some extent is a function of our continuous disclosure. So you can imagine a company, it's in, its, it, it's in the six months uh, at the back end of its financial year. It knows the analysts have all their forecasts out there. And they get to May, they finish their May numbers and they, they, they show the board what the May numbers look like. They go, it doesn't look like we're going to make our full year numbers that everybody's expecting. Well, in Australia, because of continuous disclosure, the company's bound to come out and tell people, sorry, we're not going to be making that guidance or we're not going to be making what the market's expecting of us. Or conversely, they might go, gee, these numbers are so much better than what the market expects. We just have to tell people because Mm. otherwise the market's being misled about our true prospects. So that's what confession season is. Of course, it tends to be bad news rather than good news. So expectations, that's something we hear about all the time, analysts' expectations. Mm. And you hear a a company report comes out and they either beat expectations or they don't uh, come up to expectations. Mm. Um, And that can have a significant impact on the share price, can't it? Very. So um, it can be confusing for uh, somebody looking at a, at a company coming out with some cracking numbers. You know, oh, these, the sales are up 25% and the profits I've up 30%. That. I've seen, you know, yeah, I've seen yeah. that. <laughs> and, and, and the share price falls. Yeah. And the reason why the share price falls is because the market was already expecting those cracking numbers and they came in less than what was expected. And therefore, you know, the, the, the stock price was priced for news that was better than what came out, and then the price had to adjust downwards to reflect the news. That's, mm. So that's, that's what that is, yeah. So when we were organising this interview, we mentioned that um, it's a good time to talk now because in a couple of weeks' time, you're going to be really busy. <laughs> that's right. What, um, what are you actually doing? I mean, uh, presumably you can't go through every company's accounts, 
but um, are you just looking at the the companies that you're particularly interested in, or yeah? So there's there's comp- obviously yeah, there's the companies about, there's the companies we we own or or are short. We're very interested in those companies, and there's also companies that we're thinking about owning or thinking about shorting, and then there are companies that come out with something that just grabs our attention. And that's one of the great things about being a professional investor. You know, if, if you're somebody that likes news and, 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 and let's say you're somebody that likes betting as well, not that I'd bet, but, you know, it's sort of, it's a fun, interesting sort of thing to do if you get into it, as far as I'm concerned. You know, being a professional investment manager is, is a great career because you're always looking at the news and you're always trying to work out what something's worth and you're trying to work out where, you, you know, putting your money where your mouth is. Yeah, you're running your tape measure on a whole bunch <laughs> yeah, of things, yeah. That's right. So reporting season gets really, really busy because, you know, there are some days when there are 20 or 30 companies coming out. And in any one of these companies, if you wanted to, you could spend an hour and a half or two hours between looking at the, the actual financial information that came out, understanding uh, what what's in there, looking at the presentation, listening to the presentation, asking questions to the management. And so you have to really work out where you want to spend your time. And sometimes you only spend five minutes on something, and sometimes you spend half an hour on something, and sometimes you spend two or three hours on something and you've really got to you've got to work out where you're best spending your time and 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 the more of a surprise the news is of course the more the share price is going to be reacting as well and and you may need to be making an investment decision it might be something that you own that has come out with this piece of news and it might not be obvious what the implications are for it immediately and the share price is reacting and you can't work out immediately if it's overreacting or underreacting. Do you actually want to exit your position on the back of this or would that be an overreaction? So it can be, you know, it's very intense and very stressful if you're trying to actively manage your portfolio and, 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 and protect what you're investing and but not make stupid mistakes. So there is actually a period of uncertainty there that you might be going through when these reports come out and you really do have to spend a bit of time well, this Working is this is something it. that's really interesting, right? Yeah. So, so you can imagine what happens: um, a company comes out with its numbers, and everybody finds out at the same time. The you know the man in the street finds out, the professional buy side analyst and and fund manager finds out, the sell side analyst finds out, and the dealer at the broking house finds out. Now, they all have different levels of understanding of the business. And, you know, things that look obvious on the surface, there might be um, details below that are really important. What's in the abnormals? Um, you know, are there notes to the accounts that you need to, to know about? Is there a mixed change involved in the way that the prices have changed overall for the company? Or is it a volume effect that's occurred? What's happened to costs? And is it something that's relevant to just that company or to other companies as well, right? No. So quite often we see a company come out and the share price moves one way. And then over the course of, uh, it could be as little as 15 minutes or it'd be, be two or three hours, it moves another way. And sometimes it doesn't actually move that other way until the brokers put their notes out overnight because they've, they've had to have that much time to really go through things and talk to the company and have a considered response. And maybe they've come out and gone, no, this is an overreaction by the market. You can add value as an investor or fund manager by um, being really on top of things, mm. but it's also the speed at which you can assimilate that information and be confident of what you're seeing and take your position based on what the market's doing, um, which might be counter what to, to, to what you think is right. Or it might be the market reacts positively, but you go, gee, it's not even reacting positively enough. 
I'm going to buy it, even though the share price has just jumped 10%. Mm. Is gut feeling a major part of it? Um, I, I, I'd say informed decision-making. Having seen, it, it, maybe having yeah. seen similar situations yes, in the yeah, past. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Some rhyming and so. So one of the things I'm very big on is recurring business situations and recurring patterns of behaviour. I've got absolutely no doubt that um, it's very, very important to look at how different industries or companies or products have worked in the past, how the customers have responded in the past, the cost that drive them, how the businesses have responded in the past, because you know, quite often what you're looking for is what comes next. Okay, this is what's happening now, but what does that mean next? And, you know, rather than just sticking your finger in the air and guessing, if you can look back and seeing how it worked out previously, that's really important. Another term I've heard in terms of company reporting is Mm -hmm. 4C, and I believe this is something for very small cap companies. What is it? Um, A 4C is a quarterly cash flow statement, so that's just the uh, number that the the stock exchange uses to describe that report. But this is not not every company? No, no. It's for companies that aren't profitable. Mm -hmm. When a company in its early phase, it happens a lot with mining companies, it's sort of still in the project phase, or it might be a um, a company that's come to market with revenue, but doesn't have, uh, you know, profit. The stock exchange is basically saying on a quarterly basis, you've got to show the market your cash flow. And there are certain line items you've got to show us, you've got to talk about your balance sheet, you've got to show what your expenses are in the next quarter, because you're not a profitable company yet, and people need to, to... be able to keep a a closer eye on how you're going. Mm. So how are you viewing this upcoming reporting season? Are you going into it with any thoughts? Yes, I I think this is going to be one of the most disappointing reporting seasons we've had in Australia for a long time. Um, And so that's a relative to expectation thing. But interestingly, I'm not thinking that it's going to be disappointing in terms of the results the companies have for the current financial year ended 30 June, Mm. but rather for the outlook for the following financial year ended 30 June 2023. So companies will give you some sort of projection to base the future? Yes, generally they do. Um, Because of COVID, they were given an excuse not to do that. And some companies are still sort of leaning on that as a reason why they can't give guidance. But generally, yes, companies will look at their rate of sales post 30 June. They'll look at their order books post 30 June, they'll look at what their customers are saying to them, if they've got business customers, about their expectations for ordering from them. They'll think about what the pricing that the market can support is and what their costs are going out. And they'll come out with a guidance that might be a range or it might be a figure or it might be relative to last year, we expect to do 5% better, whatever it is. There's been some very interesting changes globally and in Australia over the last 12 months. That some, it, some would say unprecedented yes. for a, a very long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, um, you know, obviously interest rates are going up and that's impacting on mortgages and we're still seeing rents climbing as well. So the cost of shelter, as they say in the United States, or housing in Australia, is going up. Likewise, energy prices are going up, whether it's electricity or gas, and petrol as well. And these are generally non-discretionary costs in the same way that the mortgage and the rent are non-discretionary. 
food prices have gone up as well, non-discretionary. So we've got inflation going, costs have gone up for consumers in non-discretionary, so less money to spend on discretionary things. And it's really the discretionary things that mostly drive the share market. That, that's a bit of jargon. What is the discretionary? Because there's a whole sector called well, discretionary. Okay, okay. so discretionary um, as opposed to, say, staples. Mm-hmm. So a staple is food. A staple is um, going to the chemist and buying your medicine. Things that you're going to not be very price sensitive about. You're going to prioritise those things. School, healthcare, food, housing. But entertainment, a new chair for the lounge, upgrading your computer, these are discretionary spends. And so if the other costs are going up and you can't do much about that, you've got less to spend on your discretionary items. Now, because of COVID, a lot of those durables were bought while people were sitting around the house and they don't need to be upgraded again. And so if anything, there's going to be a lower spend on those sort of durables and maybe a higher spend on some things like um, going out for entertainment, uh, which is, again, a discretionary, but something that people haven't been doing a lot of all that recently. And so for those stocks like the Harvey Normans of the world and so forth, we think there's going to be quite a disappointing outlook as they start to see people pulling back from purchases that are relevant to their area. Now, that's just that Area, But there are other things that are interesting from a, a results point of view that are more applicable to the whole of the all the businesses, because all the businesses have to pay for electricity. All the businesses that run manufacturing facilities have to pay for energy, whether it's gas or electricity, one or way petrol. or the other. Petrol. Um, yeah. So, so even, even, a, even a, a retailer who's seeing inflation in the cost of lighting and heating for their store, who is having to pay their employees more because... Um, the CPI has gone up and wages have to go up as well, they're then going to be having to put their prices up. And so this whole inflationary spiral begins and gets some momentum. And from that, there are winners and losers. Who can put their prices up ahead of their costs or whose prices go up lagging their costs leads to a change in margins. Now, there's been other interesting things happening because of COVID to do with the inventory cycle because there's been a lot of disruption globally about transport. And so that means, um, you know, obviously we had a period where there was a lot of stockouts on the shelves. And so retailers don't want to be in that situation again. So they have to order catch up and then they overorder and then they find everybody is released to go back and work, you know, outside of the home. And all of a sudden they've ordered too much because they've overstocked on things that people aren't buying anymore. And so we've gone into this whole inventory cycle, and that's another layer for professional investors to think about when they're looking at balance sheets and they're looking at margins. Because if they overordered when goods were cheap, then the margins will expand if they can put the prices up now that there's inflation. But by the same token, if they've had to order in a high inflationary environment um, and they can't pass that on, the margins are going to be contracting. 
say La Visa, you know, you shop at La Visa yes, and you, yeah. you could do that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, look, I, 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 yeah, I'd rather answer that question in a different way and talk about my yeah, sure. own my own journey. When I was at university, I was very keen on investing, but I was concerned because I could say, "Well, I know about this company, but do I really know how this company should be priced?" Mm. And then I go, "Well, and how should it be priced relative to other companies? I don't know about those companies." And so it's a real dilemma for somebody who's not across the market as a whole. You could be have wonderful knowledge about a particular company. But does that translate into the right price for that company? I think because in, that's 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 really it. The bottom line, isn't it? What the price is, what the market correct. is going to be paying for it. That's all we want to end exactly. up with. Exactly. What are the expectations? So I think, in fact, a better way for somebody who's really a beginner investor, who is not across all the you know investment mathematics that's that's basically the result of somebody going to university and then doing a professional course and then practicing the area for years as an analyst for somebody like 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 a beginner investor invest in things that you know about and if you think the company isn't just going to be doing well now but is going to be doing well for the next 2 3 4 5 years and that's going to be a bit beyond the time horizon of other investors Right. In general, unless you're looking at a really high growth tech stock where the market's just sort of pricing it on ridiculous multiples of revenue. But but in general, for most companies, if you can look at a company, you think you really like their product and they're expanding and they're doing well and you can see that they're able to put their prices up and and, and, and you know, people are in the stores. That's great. That's a company that should do well. And, you know, stick with it for a while. But, you know, you're in that company and then all of a sudden you see oh, gee, it's putting on a lot of sales at the moment. And and yes, companies put on sales, but this is more than usual. Or you speak to the staff and there's a lot of turnover with the staff and, and they say, oh, yeah, not happy with the management or whatever it is. You know, Then you go, trust your judgment and go, okay, time to get out. And I think if you, if you take that approach, you don't have to be all that financially literate. You can sort of assume that the market sort of knows what it's doing. You add your value on top of that by your knowledge of the business. So how should individual investors be approaching the current reporting season? Is there anything that they can do or is it just something well, I think it, we'll need to let to live through? Reporting season can be a very volatile time for stocks. We find that retailers in particular are some of the most volatile companies during reporting season because there's a lot of moving parts in a retailer and, and so there's a lot of scope for surprise to the market. I think in a general sense, you can look back at what's going on in the economy Look at this inflation that we're having for the first time in ages and look at this mixed change between staples and discretionaries and go, if you're, if you're a risk-averse person, you might want to be in, in the safer companies, those companies that are basically able to put their prices up, um, like the supermarkets, for example, as they need to because people are going to keep coming in the door and, and, and buying their food. On the other hand, um, you know you might know a business particularly well, and you can see that the share price has fallen a lot, but the balance sheet's okay. And you know, you know from your own experience as a customer that the product's great, and that it's you know all your friends want to buy it, and and, and or, or professional associates are interested in buying it. You should be taking advantage of that if that's the case. The market does tend to overreact. So often we we hear, oh, it's too late. The shares have already moved. It's too late. Well. The whole basis of professional investing is that it's never too late. <laughs> you know, it's like you know, make a call. It's not that all stocks are mispriced all the time. Most of the time, most stocks are okay. But 
there's always some stocks that are mispriced and sometimes there are more stocks mispriced than others. So what I'd say to people is, if you've got a strong view, back your view. If you don't have a strong view, don't invest for the sake of it. You mentioned earlier in the interview about being a hired gun and that you were sick of, well, you Mm. you wanted to work in your own investing framework rather Mm. than someone else's. Mm. So what is your investing framework now? What is the funnel for making decisions about what to buy and, well, sell because you do short as well? Okay. So it it hangs on this taking advantage of recurring business situations and patterns of behaviour. The analysts that look at stocks are all very clever young people for the most part, and they do really good work. And one person's guess about what the next year or two is for any particular business who's who's done good work and is and, and a smart person and has gone to talk to the company and its competitors and the suppliers and it's going to be more or less as good as anybody else's. They might differ a little bit, but that's that's what happens. You know, people can have a different, slight different view. Where I tend to make more money is looking out a little bit further and waiting for these people to change their view to what I think is going to happen. And of course, that's not applicable to all companies all the time. So I'm looking for these situations where I can look back on something that's playing out and say, in the past, a situation like this has led to an outcome like that. And if that outcome like that is different from what the market's expecting on a two, three, four-year view, that's where I can make money, either by going long or, if it's a bad thing, by going short. So that's not where it begins and ends because that's just the framework of is there an opportunity? Where it really begins and ends is doing all the hard work as an analyst and actually taking that view, turning it into forecasts for the balance sheet, the profit and loss, the cash flow, taking those numbers and turning them into, well, what price should this stock be trading at in that situation? And then finding a situation where my view about where the stock should be priced today based on my expectations is very different from where the stock is trading based on the market's expectations. And so that can be a positive or a negative. So it's a long or a short and that's what we're looking for. And so it's we're not tied to any particular style, but we're looking for value. We're looking for that payoff. To get that payoff, we're typically looking for a step change up or down in earnings. Um, so that's growth, right? And tying those two together is that insight. Why is this opportunity there and how is it going to be resolved? And you also have a process for deciding when to sell a stock as well, don't you? Indeed. It's really the same as the buy process, Mm. really. I mean, it's all about the price and the payoff. So we don't invest in a stock long unless we think there's a 60% upside to the price that we think the share price should be trading at today. Over what sort of time period? Well, this is the point. It's over the period at which we think the share price should be trading today. So we look out into the future. So we'll look out two years, three years, four years, five years, do a discounted cash flow on those numbers to bring it back to the price we think the share should be trading at today and compare that to the current price. Now, if things work out for us, the market might realise that we're right very quickly about the outlook for the stock and the price could go very quickly to the price we think it should trade at today. If it does, we'll just sell and go. We're not going to wait around for two years, three years, four years, five years to find out if we're right. If the market's paying us for what we believe is the future, that's good enough. Move on, on to the next thing. So it is, it's not a a time period about how long do I expect to own this stock for? It's an uncertain time period. It's a time period about, well, I don't know how long I'm going to own this stock for, but as long as there's that gap between what I think it's worth and what it's 
trading at, I'm going to take advantage of that. And when that gap closes up, it's over. And you also, if a thesis is not playing out, you've got triggers to look out for. Oh, very much so. So yeah. at, at two levels. In the first instance... I think it's a three-step thing from Correct. Yeah. Well, in, in the first instance, we talk about thesis violations. And so if it's just clear that we're wrong about our outlook for a company, like it's not doing the store rollout, or there's a new product that's coming to compete with it and it's losing market share and we didn't think that was going to happen, that's an investment thesis violation and we just get out completely. But that's a late trigger, typically, it's often the case that a, an investor will die the death of a thousand cuts as they come to the realisation that there's actually something wrong with their investment thesis. So what we've developed is what we call early warning triggers. And these early warning triggers are um, whenever a stock misses a, um, a guidance or, or has an unexpected downgrade, it could be because there's a spike in short selling. Or it could be that one of our own signposts, things that we're looking for in the short term, don't come to pass. It might be the numbers of stores rolled out. It might be the marketing spend relative to sales, whatever it is. In those situations, we call that a strike, a first strike, and we'll cut our position by a third. If we subsequently have a second strike, we'll exit the position completely. And that saved us a lot of money over the years. Yeah, well, it's good to have a process in place for making a decision on when to, to get out if things aren't working out. That's right. And that's, and that's, that's, that's a basis of investing as well. It's the risk management side of things. It is, and it's a hard-learnt decision mm-hmm. uh, as well. Um, there are other ways to control risk. In addition, you control for the weight of a stock in your portfolio, for example. Um, you might be controlling overall for the characteristics of your portfolio. You don't want a whole portfolio that's got a massive PE ratio relative to the market, for example. Maybe you do, but but you want to. There are risks that you can control for at a at a portfolio level. Risks you can control at a stock level, and this these early warning triggers we've found to be very very useful for controlling at a stock level. Well, let's talk about the. Well, it's not an ETF; it's an ETMF, isn't it? Exactly. Yes, yeah. an exchange traded managed fund. Managed fund. Yeah, and it was originally an LIC. Uh, we've covered this on the podcast yes. a couple of times, a listed investment company, but without getting into the um, the woods on the difference, um, why did you go from the LIC into the ETMF structure? And A, a couple of reasons. Um, the main reason was because there was a persistent discount in the price of the LIC relative and that's to common, its that's common net in assets. LIC yes. land, isn't it? Yeah, as a prof- it is common, I suppose, as a fund manager, whether or not you want to put up with that for your investors. So I, I didn't see it as a, as a stock trading on the market in, in its own little universe. I, I saw that as, uh, if you like, the shop front of my investment management business hmm. where people would come to invest with me and, and get a return. And I didn't want people putting a dollar into our stock and then only being able to pull 90 cents out. Because because LLCs are traded on the on the, on the stock exchange, and, yep. and it's, yep. it's whatever a buyer and seller will mm. will pay for them, right? Even okay. though even though the net asset value, the value of the assets that's being held in that LIC, are actually worth a lot more than correct what the current price of correct. It's a it. it's a real problem for most LICs that they trade at a discount. Um, even though the performance can be quite good, and ours was, it was persistent, and it also attracted the wrong sort of investor. It invested it attracted people that wanted to take advantage of the arbitrage, as well. So for those reasons, we wanted to change to a structure that would always trade at NTA. And our ETMF always trades at NTA because it's got a market maker. So Macquarie comes along as the market maker. And if it's trading more uh, more than a cent away from where it should be, Macquarie will buy or sell units 
to whoever wants to buy or sell them, um, which means it will always trade within that cent, right? Now, when Macquarie buys units, that's because an investor has sold units and Macquarie turns around and takes those units that they bought and they sell them to the trust. So we redeem those units. We're acting as the unit trust that redeems or issues units um, when somebody comes on the market and buys or sells using the market maker. But of course, Which is, all ETFs are run that way anyway, aren't they? Which yes. is why they, they're, they're continually changing based on the value of the assets within the index. Correct. Within that, yeah. That, that, that is correct. So for all sorts of governance and, and regulatory reasons, it's, it's a much more suitable way of doing things. And the, you know, the LICs had a huge advantage when there was no other way to get immediate liquidity. And that, you know, because they were trading on the ASX. But once unit trusts could be listed on the ASX with a market maker. As ETFs. As ETFs or ETMFs, that changed the game. And that's why we're not seeing very many LICs actually come to market anymore. But we're continuing to see lots and lots of ETFs and ETMFs come to market. So many ETFs are based on an index. So obviously yours mm. being managed, it's not mm. an index. Tell us a bit more. What was the code again? M- M-A-A-T. Yeah. So yep. tell us about... Um- okay. So there are, it's called an ETMF for a reason as opposed to an ETF. So an ETF is based on an index or, or based on, even if it's not a standard index, it's a replicable index of some sort. And it allows not just the market maker who's the official paid market maker to manage it, but anybody who knows what the index is could hedge. And so any other stockbroking firm or, 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 or primary investor could come along and try and work out if there's an arbitrage and have a crack and, and keep that spread very, very tight around the NTA. You can't do that for a prof- with a fund that's managed by a professional fund manager because we don't want to let everybody know what's in our portfolio every day. And so th- the way it's done for us is that we send that information to a specialist business that tracks the value of our portfolio during the day and sends that INAV, that interactive net asset value, to the market maker who then moves the price up and down, keeping that one cent spread all through the day. And so the market maker doesn't know what's in the portfolio, but the INAV provider does. All the market maker knows is when they buy or sell shares, they can come back to us as the fund manager and we will redeem or issue shares. So why would people consider investing in, in this? I mean, people are used to ASX 200 ETFs, for, for example. What's, what's the performance been like? Well, performance has been very good. Our aim has been to um, deliver more than 10% per annum after fees since inception. When I think of inception, we've been going now for over almost 10 years and we've done over 10% per annum after fees over 10 years. The ETMF hasn't been going for that long, about a year. And before that, we had an LIC, which was going for several years. Um, obviously, it's been a tough year. So the, the MAAT is underwater compared to where it started a year ago. But it has done a lot better than the small boards. has done a little bit worse than the ASX 200. In general, though, we tend to beat both of those indices. And we are quite nimble and we react to what's going on in the market. And of course, we can go short as well as long. So from an investor's point of view, they can invest with a professional fund manager who has a track record of beating the market after fees over quite a long 
period. And the other thing that they've got going for them is that we pay a quarterly distribution. So every quarter, we pay 1.5% distribution. So if you're an investor and you need that yield to, to live on, you know that you've always going to get that every quarter. And of course, if you want to sell your shares, units at any time, you know that you're going to get NTA. So is that set at uh, 1.5% distribution? Yeah, amount? so there's a, a change in the tax law a few years ago called AMIT, mm-hmm. and that allows unit trusts to have a more um, regular distribution, not having to worry about only distributing from realised gains or losses or income. It allows it to be smoothed out a little bit more. Over the last 10 years ago, so we've been able to pay out a 6 or 7% yield per annum, but it's been very lumpy from year to year. Mm-hmm. Um, that's changed because of AMIT now, and we were able to basically smooth that out and pay out 1.5% per quarter. And then at the end of the financial year, if we've got more money to pay out, we'll put on an extra dividend on top of that. Yeah. Is it franked? It's franked to the extent that there is franking to back it. To be available. Correct. From, from Correct. The holdings yeah. within the Yeah. Now, we, we make a lot of our returns from capital gains, whether that's gains from shorting or gains from going going long. So um, we do have franking, some franking, but um, a lot of it is unfranked. So if listeners want to find out more, where can they go? They can go to our website, um, monashinvestors.com.au and all the information's there, both for our listed MAAT and for our unlisted MAIF. Simon Shields, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Phil. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.